Survival podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is February the 8th, 2013, and this is episode 1067 of the Survival Podcast. And it's Friday, 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 and that means it's time for your calls to 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. What you do is you pick up your phone, you call that number, you mash those buttons, you touch that touchpad, whatever it is for you, and uh, you'll get a voice message. And in about two minutes or less, you need to leave me your point, your comment, your call, whatever it is you want me to respond to. Or if it's a call for an expert panel member, make sure you mention the expert panel member you're calling in for when you do that. I don't have any of those for you today. got a bunch lined up for next week already, though. And uh, here's the formula to get your calls on the air. This is probably going to give you a 50-50 shot of getting on the air. Be direct, be to the point, ask your question or make your point in the first two sentences out of your mouth. That way if you uh, go on with a bunch of details that don't really need to be on the show, it's easy for me to just take those off and put you on the show anyway and give you an answer. And if they are important, that allows me to know what you're talking about while you're talking about it instead of listening to the end and know why you were giving me all the details. It's better for the flow of the show, it's better for the audience. Part of my job as the host is to make sure that when I put you on the air that the audience doesn't go, what is this guy talking about? And at the end go, oh, that's what he's talking about. You want him to go, okay, I know what he's talking about, now let me listen to his details. It just makes the show work better. Call from a quiet area. Do not call, call from the back of a motorcycle or running a weed eater or a chainsaw. And if you're on a cell phone, make sure you have about three bars or more. And you're really likely to get on the air if you make a few calls over time. Uh, with that said, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors before I get to your calls. The sponsor of the day, number one today, Survival Gear Bags. You know, Survival Gear Bags actually came right out of the Survival Podcast community. Kelly John Doe, you know, he works for a company that does fulfillment for a living. And when he first became a, a forum member many years ago, he started to do some group buys for forum members, just finding some deals and getting some group buys done. He thought, hey, you know what, we could expand right into this and set up a business specifically to serve the preparedness industry. He did that. He's been serving this community now for about three years with Survival Gear Bags. He has great reviews on the forum, great relationships with members of the community, great products and services. And it's why I chose him actually to run TSP Gear Shop as well. So he's doing a good job there. Check him out today, survivalgearbags.com. All the gear you need and the bags you need to put it in. Check him out today. And by the way, Survival Gear Bags now has 100% free shipping on everything. How do you like that? That's not an MSB uh, benefit, guys. That is on everything they sell. Free shipping. MSB, you still get a discount on top of that. How cool is that? Next up today, JM Bullion, a great source of silver and gold. You know, I think since I came out with TSP Mint, people might think, well, you know, what is where does that leave JM Bullion? You're going to hear an answer today that I think that diversity in your silver investments is a great idea. And let me tell you what, everything JM Bullion sells, I don't. I mean, that's that's the best way to look at it. I sell proprietary, uh, exclusive, limited edition medallions from the AOCS store. And uh, Jam Bullion sells silver eagles, generic rounds, and stuff like that. So I think that we fit nicely with each other. I am not ever going to tell you that you should buy 100% of your silver and gold from me. And I think things like silver eagles should play a, pl play a role, at least on some level, in uh, anybody's silver portfolio. So for those needs, check out Jam Bullion. I went out of my way to find them when I did. And 
and uh, they provide a discount for MSB members on orders over $300 as well. So they, they do that. And uh, they have really, really competitive pricing. They have better pricing than big silver houses like Monex and Atmix. And you can still talk to the owner if you want to. So JM Bullion still carries my highest recommendation. I guess we are in some levels a competitor, but I consider it a friendly competitor relationship. And I'm glad to have them as a sponsor. Next up today, I want to remind you guys about TSP Mint. Uh, do consider getting some of your silver from me. I have some great options for you there. Uh, check out TSP Gear. We have some cool stuff. Check out the new French press mugs, guys. You're going to want one. They're awesome. They just really are. Uh, and consider getting some of the uh, Every Citizen of Sentinel uh, Velcro patches, especially you guys that shoot and have friends that uh, have kits and bags and stuff like that. Give some of those out. They don't cost that much, and I think they're really cool and a great way to share the message of the Survival Podcast. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade today if you haven't already done so and help support the show at 18.3 cents an episode and get so many discounts and so many benefits that you'll have a membership that more than pays for itself. Uh, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders like, say, a paramedic, email me before, not after, before you join. Put service discount on the subject line, and I'll reply to you with discount code. For some reason, a lot of those emails send, seem to go in the spam filter. If you uh, if you don't get a response from me on a request for the discount code within a day, uh, something probably has gone wrong. You may want to resend it, and, uh, and maybe if it's in the spam filter twice, it'll help me dig it out. Uh, some of you guys that maybe have gotten two responses to me on the same email about that, that's usually what happens. I just respond twice to make sure I got it done. All right, with that, let's go ahead and take your first call today, and that's uh, a pretty cool one. Hi, Jack and listeners. This is Dell uh, outside of Raleigh, North Carolina. I have a comment. Uh, many episodes ago, you were talking about uh, certain types of foods, long-term, long-term storage foods you can put away. Rice always comes to the top of the list. I know you're into paleo, so uh, it may not appeal to you that much, but a lot of us rice lovers like myself, uh, I remember you making a comment, buy the pre-cooked rice. It takes a lot less energy to bring it back up to edible form than uncooked rice. <clears throat> well, I thought about that for a while. I thought, what would happen if I simply put the rice into water, cold water, right out of the tap? Didn't even have to heat it up. I did that today, uh, and lo and behold, a couple hours later, drain it all off, and it is as if it were just cooked, except it's not hot. It's full-bodied. The, the flavor is just fine, and I thought this is great. In a in a real situation where you can't cook the rice or heat the water up, you can at least, uh, if you're patient, you can wait a couple of hours for it to uh, rehydrate, and it's perfectly edible add stuff to it. You want to warm it up, stick it out in the sunlight, or put it under a low heat source just to bring it up uh, <clears throat> to a uh, palatable temperature. But uh thought that would be uh, a nice thing to know. Thanks, guys. Keep up the good work. You know what? I love it when somebody calls in with something I don't know as long as they don't call in and go, you're so stupid, you didn't know this, because, frankly, there's no way for all of us to know everything, and that's something I didn't know. I had no idea that you could just throw rice in water and wait a few hours and it would turn into rice like something you might want to eat. It actually has me rethinking my patented Jack Spearco method for making rice without having a headache. 
see, a lot of people cook rice. You put a certain amount of water and a certain amount of rice. You cook it till the rice absorbs. And if you don't get it right, then the rice is sticky. If you don't get it right, then the rice is dry. So Jack Spirigo's method of rice cooking has always been cook it like pasta. Get a more, way more water than you need. Get it up to boiling. Uh, rinse your rice. Then throw it in there and boil it. Yeah, boil it like, like pasta. And stir it up and boil it. Pay attention to it. And not very long after you start doing that, you can pull a little piece of rice out with a fork or a spoon. And you can taste it. It tastes like, well, it's done now. So then you take it off the heat. You drain it and uh, rinse it off to get the excess starch out so it doesn't become sticky. And put it to the side and heat it up and use it whenever you need it. And that works great. This might work better. I'm going to try this today. And I'm going to try it with brown rice because I'm a big fan of brown rice if I'm going to eat rice at all. So what I'm going to do today, I'll, I'll do this and I'll report back to you guys on Monday how well it worked. I've got some rice that I just jarred up in the new uh, vacuum canner, uh, which I have a great video out, by the way. If you haven't seen it yet, you should check it out on the uh, new vacuum canner uh, that was sent to me for a review uh, for dry canning using mason jars. And it's awesome. And I've got some rice left over that didn't, wasn't going to fill another jar of it. So I'll you know take a cup out and see how it works. On the paleo thing, I have a question on that later in the episode, so I'll save some of that till then. But just know that just because a person's paleo doesn't mean they don't eat anything that's not on the paleo list. It means uh, if you're 100% paleo, that would be the case. For me, you know what? If I'm going to have, um, let's say I'm going to make up some jambalaya or gumbo. Gumbo is a better example. So shrimp and uh, sausage gumbo. I love it. I love it. Um, now, generally what people do is get a big old bowl of rice and put a couple ladles of gumbo on there. Not me. I'm just not going to do that. It's... The gumbo is what I want, but you know, gumbo with no rice just doesn't seem right. So what I'm going to do is put a big old bowl of gumbo and a couple tablespoons of cooked rice in it to give that marriage that's so wonderful between the two. That's how I moderate my paleo stuff. And when it comes to long-term storage, there are certain foods that are not maybe the best for us to eat day to day. But they store for a billion years if you're storing them the right way. And they're a great survival ration. And, you know, it goes back to it's better to feed your neighbors than to shoot them, in the words of Steve Harris. So I store plenty of stuff like that. I just rely on its use in a minimist way. And I'll save more on paleo to the next question. But really great tip. If you have any tips like that, things that, you know, the general person just doesn't know, And I bet you this is a lost piece of information. I bet you. I did the whole book on uh, Ido Japan, or like Japan's Ido period, uh, that Paul Wheaton mentioned yesterday. And, um, you know, it didn't say anything there, but I bet you in, in these periods of times, there were plenty of places where that's exactly how they prepared rice when cooking wasn't as easy to do. So uh, if you've done this, I'd love to hear from you in the show notes. And again, I'll let you guys know on, uh, on Monday how it works out for me. I have no reason to doubt the caller, but who knows? Maybe it doesn't work with all types of rice. We'll see if it works with Indian Basamati brown rice uh, over the weekend. Uh, let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Dan in uh, occupied New England, two, uh, two paranoid on the forum. I have a question about TSP uh, mint silver. Um, if I have about $9,000 that I want to protect um, by converting it to silver, Should I buy from TSP Mint? Now, I know that's kind of a loaded question from um, from you um, at this point, but the details are this. Um, I want to clean up my wife's Roth IRA. Um, I really like the idea of supporting TSP Mint, American Jobs, um, all that. I, I really don't want to buy silver from TurboTax Timmy. But um, the problem is that we're uh, planning a move to Idaho soon, 
and uh, we may need to convert silver back to FRNs if we're going to fund our trip out to Idaho. Um, I'm worried that if we have a whole bunch of silver from TSP Mint, that it won't be as exchangeable as if I had uh, silver eagles or some other m- more uh, recognizable currency. Uh, if you could comment on that, should I should I uh, go with TSP Mint? Should I go with uh, uh, eagles? I'd really appreciate it. Thanks for the show. Thanks for all you do. And uh, looking forward to hearing from you. Thanks. All right, so there's actually more questions there the caller has than the caller realizes. But let's start out with exchangeability of silver. Silver is silver is silver is silver. There is no place that buys silver and gold in volume where you would go to cash in silver, where they're going to walk in and they go, oh, we only take eagles. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. People buy silver based on the spot price of silver and whatever they're paying over that spot price for the form that the silver is in. Your average silver dealership will probably look at AOCS barter medallions as being equivalent to any generic silver round. Um, within the AOCS network, they may be exchanged for barter at a premium, but when you go down to cash it in for a, a you know, for currency, that's what it is. It's silver bullion. They can look at it real quick and tell that it's not something that's counterfeited. It's actually really easy to make that determination. And you will have no trouble uh, exchanging my silver medallions or any other legitimate silver medallions on God's green earth, no matter where you buy them. Now, you will get less for generic silver than you will for silver eagles. You will also pay less for it. So to me, that's a wash. So when it comes to buying silver with concern of exchanging it back into currency, Apart from tax consequences and barter and the shit hit the fan and all of that, I don't worry about it, and I don't think you should either. Now, there's other questions here, though, that need to be addressed. The next one would be, if you have $9,000 and you're anticipating needing to use some of it, it, in fact, there's four questions here. Let's go to the next one, because the next one isn't even that. You have a Roth IRA. Should you cash it out and get the money out of it? And the answer is, if you need the money and you've decided that's what you want to do, yes, you can do that and you can pay the managed penalties. Now, here's something you need to know, though. If you can calculate all of the money you've put into the IRA, the Roth IRA, and only a portion of that money is a gain. And in fact, if you've experienced a loss and there's no gain on the money you've contributed, you've already paid tax on that, you fill the paperwork out right, you can withdraw that and pay no penalties and no interest on it. Because the money that you put in there, you're only sheltering the gain. You've already been taxed on the money. You can extract it. If there's, for instance, $9,000 in there and $500 is a gain over the last, you know, since ever you've been contributing, 500 of it only is a gain. You could extract 8,500, leave 500 in there and pay no interest in penalties. I didn't believe that was true. I've had enough CPAs and CFAs and CFPs email me proof that if you fill the paperwork out right, it's completely legal, it's completely acceptable, and if you want somebody to help you with it, you just need someone that knows that so they don't tell you it's not possible. So please consider, instead of completely liquidating it, only taking the part that you're not going to be burdened with. If you've decided you want to be burdened anyway and you just want all the money you can get out of it, make sure you're only paying the interest and penalties on the portion of the money Okay, that is actually taxable and penal, penal, penalizable. Okay, 
That's, you know, and maybe that's a loophole for right now, but it exists. So make sure you're using that. So should you pull the money out of a Roth IRA to fund your move? If it funds your move and you can do it, especially with minimizing your interest and penalties. And I love that it's a Roth for this. Go ahead and don't let somebody tell you, you gotta save that for your retirement, man. Hey, you gotta take care of yourself now and you gotta set your life up now so that you'll be around for your retirement. How about that? Okay, now next, let's say that you did have $9,000 and you're anticipating this move and you're expecting that you would need some or all of that money to fund your move. Should you buy silver from anybody on God's green earth with that money right now? Absolutely not. Don't do it. Don't spend your money with me or anywhere else on silver at least for the portion of the money that you anticipate needing. Silver is a volatile commodity. It has massive moves at times up and down. When you're looking at a short-term timeline, and a year's a short-term timeline, it is conceivable you could buy at 31 and end up selling at 26 and having to take the loss because you need the money. So I would look at it this way. You don't protect your money short-term, Okay, unless we're at the end game. When you see the end game coming, you, you then you run to protection. We're not there, so you t you don't pro you're not protecting your money by putting it into silver over a one year period. Okay, you're protecting your money by putting the silver over a ten or fifteen year period. That's that's how you play the averages in it, and it's worked out beautifully ever since the Federal Reserve took over. We know that they know how to devalue dollars. We know that. Okay. So that works long term. So now the question becomes, is there a portion of that money that you anticipate needing? And is there a portion of that money that you anticipate not needing? And then we can take that not needed portion and then we can take that and decide if silver is the right investment for that money, then we can go and buy silver. All right. So you see what I'm saying? Let's start out with, should we be eviscerating this IRA in the first place? What are the consequences of it? How do we do it with minimizing the consequences? Why are we doing this? Are we doing this just because we don't want an IRA anymore? Hey, I support that. I, I'm not making a contribution to an IRA or 401k for the rest of my life. Never going to do it again. Every dime I save will be outside of those damn things. I don't want to do it. There's some money locked up in there. I got to decide whether I want to do the self-directed thing like Rob brought on, or I just want to bite the bullet and pay the man and get the money. So I'm in the same boat there with you. I, I understand that you, you know, you'd want to do that. If it's just to fund this move, and you wouldn't do it if it wasn't for the move, do you really need to do it to fund the move? You can always leave it there and take it out later. You can always, within an IRA, you can invest in anything. So if you want to hold cash, or you want to hold silver in the IRA, you can do that right now. You can buy a good silver ETF uh, like S, uh, SIVR. is probably the best ETF I know of in the silver market. Um, and uh, or you could hold cash. You just put it in a freaking basically a money market account if you want to. So you don't have to take it out right away. You can make a determination if this is really necessary. If you do take it out and you anticipate needing this money for your move, set aside the portion that you need for your move and keep it in cash. Don't go to silver short term with anybody money, any money. Silver's a long term play. Let's say though that it doesn't even matter what the number is. Let's say it was $9,000. And you said, I have $9,000. I want to put that. I'm hell bent for leather. I'm going to put that $9,000, 100% into silver, and I don't own any other silver. Should I buy $9,000 worth of silver for TSP Mint? I know what you think I'm going to say, but the answer is going to be no. It's probably not what you thought I would say. Uh, no, I think you should buy some silver from me. I don't see any reason why not to. You're a member of the community. You want to support what I'm doing, and hey, I have great silver. So why not buy some for me? 
But I have always advocated, and just because I'm silver, uh, selling silver, I'm not going to change that now, diversity within your silver collection. So I would say that you should allocate some portion of it to eagles because they are the most recognizable and they do have tax advantages. And you can sell 30 a year under current code with no tax penalties whatsoever, no matter how much money you made on them. Basically, your first 30 in sales a year are considered a currency exchange. Right? You went into, because they're technically U.S. currency, which to me means there should be no tax consequences on them at all. You should be able to buy as many as you want and sell as many as you want. If the government was smart, since it raises money for the treasury, that's what they would do, but they're too stupid to do it. The number I've always heard, and the only number I've ever been able to verify with anybody that seems to know what they're talking about, is 30 per year, uh, with no tax consequences. Now, beyond that, it's supposed to be a 1099 on the honor system, so you're supposed to do it for yourself. You would do it or not, but you know, you're playing games with the Ira Ramon Sancia then, the big gangster IRS, right? So now, when it comes to generic silver, uh, which, or AOCS limited edition silver, again, you can exchange that anywhere that people buy and sell silver. You can also trade with it. And one of the things we need to open our minds about with silver is trading with it. And that's the biggest reason I have for diversification. Okay, it's not exchange for currency. I don't care what you have. If you have a bag of silver dimes that are all dated 1960 and you go down to a silver place, they're going to take the spot price, the type of silver, they're going to give you a number, they're going to give you money. Okay, that's it'll work with my it'll work with anything. That's how silver houses and gold houses do business. It's that simple. Don't make it complicated because it's not. But let's say that you had about $9,000 in silver. And you told somebody that you were going to, you know, let's say you were going to buy a truck used. And you said to him, hey, man, wouldn't it be better for both of us if this was just like basically on paper a gift? And the guy goes, how would that work out? And you go, would you take silver for it? He goes, how much do you, he goes, well, uh, yeah, I want $3,000 for it. And you say, well, I will give you, you know, X ounces of silver. And he might say, you know what, I, I don't like those generic rounds. I want American Eagles if he's savvy on those, and that's what he likes. Or he might say, I don't care what form it's in. Or he might say, you know what, I like small denominations. Or he might say, you know what, I'm willing to take a thousand, a thousand, a thousand. When you get into barter situations, having diversity in your collection and small divisible amounts of silver, like tenth ounce, quarter ounces, or U.S. silver coinage from pre-64, allows you that flexibility. So I wouldn't tell anybody to go all in with any form of any investment, period. Right? I wouldn't tell you to put all $9,000 in a pre-64 coin. I wouldn't tell you to put it all in American Eagles. And I damn sure wouldn't tell you to put it all in Jack Spirko's coinage. How might I allocate it? Three grand, three grand, three grand is as good as anything else. But it's up to you. I'm not going to tell you how to do that. But if the concern for anybody out there with buying silver for me is can I take that silver and go sell it, that concern's invalid. That it will exchange the same way, and there is no concern about exchangeability of nine 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 five fine silver. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. And if you find one shop somewhere that says we only buy eagles, I don't care. You can find plenty of others that don't care. And I've never run into one yet. Um, right now, if anything, people are breaking their necks on the buy side to meet the demand side, just with raw silver to mint into coins. Um, that's that's something that Rob gave me a new view of yesterday when I visited the mint. Uh, well, let's go ahead and take another call. Jack, this is Jarhead Ted from the forum. 
since you have tried the paleo diet and had success with it, I wanted to ask how sustainable it is long-term, and are you still on the diet, and what are its difficulties? I need a long-term lifestyle change. I've gained almost 100 pounds and a couple of X's since I left the Marines several years ago. I need a plan that I can stay with for the next several years, if not the rest of my life. I wanted you to tell me if the paleo lifestyle keeps your interest long-term, and if you found that it really does offer all the nutrition you need to live. I'm not wanting just a weight loss diet. I want something that will help me increase my energy and endurance as well. Thanks, Jack. Actually, it's my reason I think it's the best way to live in the world is because it's completely sustainable. Um, I think that people have a really hard time getting their head around how simple this concept is. Look, if it's a high-carbohydrate thing, you don't eat it. That's it. And there's not that many things that are high carbohydrate. And my modified version is you want to eat fruit, go ahead. Just, you know, keep an eye on it and don't gorge yourself on it and only eat it, you know, with like, okay, hold, let me look at it this way. Uh, it's not normal in any climate on the planet for people to eat apples year round. It's not normal. There's no place where apples grow year round. There's different fruits that grow year round. So, there, you know, if you're going to eat a banana this week uh, or maybe a couple through this week, don't eat any next week to minimize the amount of sugar that you're getting from, you know, fruits like apples and pears and bananas and things like that. But bananas are probably the worst offender, by the way, because they have extremely high amounts of sugar. Um, but most other fruits, actually, when you're eating them, instead of juicing them, the sugar is moderated by a fairly sizable amount of fiber. So fruit's on the menu. So what's not on the menu? Mostly things that are white. White potatoes, white rice, white bread, and you should minimize even your whole grains. So it's grains, and for a lot of people it also is beans. But to me, the beans is generally people that are dealing with a an intolerance uh, of them. And if you have a tolerance for beans, I don't even put legumes off the list because, frankly, I can eat a legume fresh. My my litmus test for uh, whether it's a mainstay component of my diet is one, does it have a very high sugar content? And if it does, the answer is no, it's not. It can be a treat. Okay, so I've gone from, you know, cake being a dessert to maybe an apple once in a while being a dessert. Okay, the other question is, can I eat it in its raw state? Whether I'm going to eat it raw or not, could I eat it that way and would I enjoy it? So if I had a handful of dry wheat berries that were fresh threshed and, and ready to go to be ground into flour, and I threw them into my beak and started chewing on them, would they taste good and would I eat them? And the answer is absolutely not. A wheat uh, berry is actually designed to not be consumed. Okay, a, 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 let's, if we look at something like a strawberry, it's designed to be consumed. It wants an animal to eat it because its little little seeds, which are actually the fruit, by the way, will pass through the animal, be defecated out, and spread. When grain is eaten, you kill it, so it doesn't. There's no advantage to a wheat berry to be consumed, so it has natural defenses. This is part of the entire problem, along with the high carbohydrate component of it. So it's not that much. I don't eat soy. I don't eat rice, I don't eat potatoes, I don't eat wheat. And I, when I say I don't, I mean I don't eat them in large quantities. I probably get less than 10% of my total diet from them. All I can tell you is what happened when I started doing this. I was 280-odd pounds. I was not in very good shape. I had a huge gut on me. And I started to eat this way. I started eating three meals a day, and then I started eating two meals a day. And frankly, now I pretty much, sometimes I eat something here and there, but I pretty much only eat one major meal a day. 
It's not by choice, okay? It's not like I have decided that I'll eat once a day and that way I'll stay thin. No. What happened was all of a sudden my appetite was gone. It was dead. It was non-existent throughout the day. I used to get sweaty uh, from hypoglycemia, basically, basically the opposite of diabetes. Sweaty, angry, irritable, shaky. It almost never happens anymore. And when it does happen is when I'm on the road and I decide, you know what, to hell with it. I'm going to have biscuits and gravy at Cracker Barrel with some sausage and bacon. And I eat that, and about noon, all of a sudden, i got to eat something again. Which means that's not a good diet for me. And I shouldn't do that. But once in a while, I'm going to do it because, hey, we all got to live and we all got to enjoy certain things. And you know what? Biscuits and gravy taste good. But I just like when you drink too much and you get a good buzz on, you know you're going to suffer tomorrow. Every once in a while, you're willing to do it. That's how I look at those high intakes of carbs, especially combined with fats anymore. It's actually remarkably easy. I can tell you the easiest way to get on this and stay on this is commit in the beginning, you're going to eat a huge salad with mostly green vegetables and things on it like bacon, eggs, cheese, leftover steak or chicken from the night before, blue cheese dressing, stuff like that, and eat that salad for lunch until you just don't really feel like eating the salad for lunch anymore. And if you continue to feel like eating it, keep eating it. Uh, breakfast, eggs, bacon, sausage, things like that. Now look, when I make, sometimes I'll make up some eggs and sausage for breakfast burritos, all right? And I'll eat a tortilla. I'm not going to fall over and die from one freaking tortilla. But instead of eating three relatively thin breakfast tortillas like I used to, I eat one great big fat breakfast tortilla. Half of the, the eggs and stuff fall out of it, and I eat that with a fork. I get that. So what I'm saying is you can do paleo, and Rob even says that most people will probably only go 80% to 90% of the way there. The key, though, to jump-starting the whole biological process is you almost have to go cold turkey from all these addictive substances, these carbohydrate substances, and then you can wean back in a little bit. So you go whole hog, follow the Rob Wolf or other person, whoever you're following philosophy, for 30 to 60 days. That'll be long enough to do two things. Purge the toxins out of your freaking body from this crap because humans aren't supposed to eat wheat. I'm sorry. You can make a case to me on some level for some rice in your diet and some other things like that. Wheat is not human food. I'm sorry if it offends you vegans. I'm sorry. It's not human food. Wheat specifically and other grains like wheat are designed to resist consumption. That's why we have to do all this processing to get it into a form that we can eat. That's why bread exists. Again, try a handful of uncooked wheat berries and let me know how it works out for you. White potatoes are like eating sugar. So substitute sweet potatoes for your white, 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 white potatoes. Eat them minimally. Do it every other day instead of every day with your steak. But the biggest thing you can do to get on this diet and love it is get into grilling. If you're grilling meat every night, and a gas grill, charcoal grill, smoker, I don't give a damn. If you get into grilling meat and you're sitting down every night to a nice big hunk of meat and mix it up, there's, what about variety? Okay, chicken, fish, pork, beef, okay, turkey, uh, that's not enough variety for you. How many cuts of beef are there? How many cuts of pork are there? Chicken, 
legs, leg and, and thigh grilled one night, chicken breast done as a stir fry the next night. I mean, you know, com you know, it's, it's no less. How much variety is there in bread? You know, how much variety is there in flour? You're not losing variety. It's a nonsensical argument. You take that approach. You give it hell for 30 to 60 days. You can, and you, you start shedding that weight and you start feeling better. And all of a sudden, all the resistance, because here's the problem. Our minds are programmed to believe the bullshit that the mainstream nutrition world is feeding you, which is the gruel is good for you. Let me tell you how this whole concept that we should be eating grains came about. It was expensive to produce meat. The kings, the dukes, etc. wanted the meat for themselves, so they told the stupid peasants, that's you and me, gruel is good for you, eat your gruel. While the king slammed down on roasted venison and pork. So that's the key. Is it sustainable? If you start doing it, I think you'll find it more sustainable than freaking some stupid crap like Weight Watchers, counting your points, all this crap. Because I don't do any of that. All I do is limit the types of foods that I eat, and I eat as much as I want of the types of food that I'm allowed to have, because what happens is in the beginning, you'll eat like a tiger. You'll, you, I mean, you'll just eat and eat, and you'll be like, oh, this is great. And then you'll be like, ah, oh, my stomach feels like a little, maybe I overdid it, you know? And then, like, the next day you eat a little bit less, and then all of a sudden the body starts to reconstitute itself into its natural form, because this is how humans are supposed to live. Humans are supposed to live on vegetables, meats, nuts, seeds, okay? Things you can pick up and eat, and you can eat raw meat, With the health issues and all, I understand why we cook meat, but I'm talking about from a taste standpoint and from picking up chewing and being able to process it, there's absolutely nothing prevents human beings from eating raw meat other than concern with E. coli and things like that. All right? So if you can pick it up and eat it in its natural state, not that you should eat it that way, then it goes on the list. Try it. You'll find out it's sustainable. I, I promise you. And the, the big reason I could say that is I'm on two years now. And I'm on over a year of taking off 80 pounds. And I had a little bout of going back and eating some of the crap I should and getting into eating some candy again and put a few pounds back on. As soon as I quit, it came right back off. And I've basically maintained my weight loss for well over a year now. Now, I'll tell you what. That is higher success rate than just about any other diet that's out there. And I don't consider it a diet. I consider it a way of living. And I'm very, very pleased with it. That's all I can say. Let's take another call. Jack, this one should be an easy one for you. Given the choice between a 9mm pistol and a 9mm carbine, which one would you choose? And given the state of ammunition these days, would you choose a 9mm, a 40 caliber, or a 45? Thanks. I'd be lost without DSP. Lost and alone. Bye. It's easy, but only if I cheat and put a condition on it and then answer it. And the condition would be, what do you want to do with it? If you want to keep it in your house for home defense uh, and have it as maybe a survival tool, uh, eventually, if necessary, a hunting tool, etc., uh, but it's going to be something that you're not going to try to carry around on your person at all times, uh, with the exception of states where it's legal to carry an unloaded rifle, even with ammunition, anywhere you go, cased up, like in a briefcase. And then I'm a big fan of the Keltec Sub 2000 for that, in addition to a carry piece on your body, um, then I would go with the carbine. But in general, if you want something to be with you, then obviously a handgun works where a rifle and a carbine does not. 
The reason we carry handguns is because it's not practical, legal, or reasonable to carry rifles. That is the only reason. There is no doubt that you will do better as far as putting rounds on the target. And if we up the cartridge a little bit, uh, do a better job of stopping the flight with a carbine. Uh, even if we keep the cartridge the same, we're going to get more velocity, a little bit more knockdown power out of a 9mm, out of a 16-inch barrel, for instance. But the, the weapon is much easier to control. And people say, well, I have great control over my Glock 19. Great, you'll have even better control over your uh, your Beretta carbine or your Kel-Tec carbine or, or what have you. You absolutely, I don't care how good you are, uh, you know, with the exception of the one rare freak out there, and if you're that person, don't bother the rest of us with your freakishness. Um, the average person is going to do much better at control and hitting the target with a carbine over a handgun. There's a reason that you don't see people competing in rifle competitions with handguns, and it's not just because they're not allowed, it's because they'll lose. Alright? So. I would go with the carbine for that. If it's something you're going to carry, obviously you're going to go with the handgun. But assuming you know that, then I'm going to go between the two with a carbine because it has more utility for me. Um, as far as would I go with 940 or 45, given the ammunition situation right now, here's the big thing, mister. The 9mm is the most common one out there. So it doesn't matter. You can't get much ammo for any of them. Um, it's actually easier to get your hands on stuff like, you know, 7.62 Toker of, uh, pistol ammunition than just about any other form of pistol ammunition right now. Uh, which seems like an oddball, weird surplus cartridge, but there's plenty of it out there and it's still very affordable. Um, this is what I advise you to do. The current scare will subside. It will subside because the legislation clearly isn't going to pass, or it will subside because it will pass and then people will fall into what's still available. Okay? Uh, and it's not going to pass. The current Feinstein legislation will not pass. The dangers in states like Maryland and California that are going to do as bad or worse as the Feinstein bill at the state level. And the NRA, you better get off your ass and you better challenge every damn one of these. If you want my money, you better be filing legislation right now against the state of New York. You better be ready to file it against Maryland and California if these two idiot states do what they're about to do. Do it or lose my support. That's that's flat out. Challenge this shit in a court of law. Anyway, um, when this subsides, one, do what I've told you for a long time. Whatever you want, buy that. Don't buy anything because you believe in some magical fairy that will crap 9mm ammo in the middle of the zombie apocalypse. If you can't get it now, what chance do you think you have of it getting it in the middle of the zombie apocalypse? Just because it's every military uses it or other, some other nonsense like that. Okay? You see the results of stock up. Number two, take up reloading, and it's easier to stock ca cases, primers, and powder, and, and, and components, of, you know, bullets, than it is to stock ammo. You can stock more in a smaller area. You can cast your own bullets if you have to. Lead is still freely available. What you'll find right now, though, is powder's not that hard to come by. Even once fired brass. Tougher than normal, but not that hard. You know what's hard to get right now? Primers. Primers. When this goes away, buy lots of primers. Small rifle, large rifle, small pistol, large pistol. And even if you don't use, let's say, large pistol primers or small rifle primers, whatever, buy lots of any of them anyway, because right now, if you got them, you can sell them at a premium. 
They pretty much last forever as long as they're kept cool and dry. Uh, they belong in your prep. So the answer to, in conjunction with what's going on now, would I prefer 940 or 45? The answer is buy what you want because it don't matter. They're all selling at a premium right now. Every single one. Go to try, go try to buy a thousand rounds of 22 long rifle right now and see how hard it is to find that. People are going crazy. And this is what I have to say to all of the gun grabbers in the government. Thank you. Thank you so much. I have been telling America for years, buy ammo, buy guns, buy lots of it. The more we have, the harder it is for them to take it away. The more people out there who are armed citizens, the more safe the Second Amendment is. I've been begging people to buy, buy, buy. Own responsibly and safely and in large amounts. I've been begging them. I've been begging them. I've been begging them. And you idiots have done a job that I could have spent my whole life trying to do over the You know, if I live to be 80 years old, let's say 50 years of my life, 60 years of my life, if I had dedicated every day of my life to getting people to do that, you idiots have done more to accomplish my goal for me in 90 days than I could have ever achieved on my own. Thank you, Diane Feinstein. Thank you so much for reminding Americans how precious their Second Amendment right was. I love what you've done. I think it's great. I, Diane, this is what I want you to do. I want you to sharpen your pencil. I want you to go back. I want you to go and write an even more onerous law. I want you to try to ban all guns. I want you to do it right now. I'd love you to introduce that, honey, on the Senate floor tomorrow. Well, you can't do it at Saturday. And you lazy asses don't work on Saturdays, except when you've manufactured a crisis and are making a, a you know, and pretending to do something about it. So how about Monday morning, Diane? How about you and all your un other gun grabber buddies go out and write an even more onerous piece of legislation? Why don't you guys threaten to ban BB guns. Go ahead and do that too. Go ahead. Go ahead. Do it. I dare you to do it. You keep pushing. The American people will keep pushing back. You guys trying to grab guns at the federal level have done more to solidify and resolve Americans to defend the Second Amendment than the NRA, Gun Owners of America, Jack Spierko, and every other advocate for it could have ever done. Thank you so much. Please do some more. Please put up more stupid legislation that has no chance of passing. Please put up more stupid crap that Harry Reid won't even support. Do it. Please. I dare you. It's a great idea. Do it. Threaten to ban revolvers. Go ahead. Do it. Do it. You know what? You know what? The people that make revolvers, they could use some business too. How about that? Threaten to ban air rifles. Go ahead. Crossman, good American company. They, I think they'd like to sell some more. You know? Daisy, come on. Go ahead. Do it. I dare you. Talk about a backfire, guys. Sorry to go on a rant there, but really, I honest to God mean it. Diane, thank you for restoring the American resolve to defend the Second Amendment. Hi, Jack. This is Matt calling from New Jersey. I uh, recently got in a conversation with a good friend of mine, pretty level-headed guy, about um, holding precious metals and inflation versus deflation. And he kind of subscribes to the view that, uh, which actually is, I guess, um, fostered or whatever, backed by um, Harry Dent, who bases all his economic 
forecasts or a lot of it off of demographics, and he's, you know, I guess he's been pretty right on with some predictions, but his whole thing is uh, basically we are not going to experience any kind of inflation to speak of for the long, like maybe decades, because uh, we're in the recession and the economy is so bad and things are not going to turn around, and demographically speaking, the you know, the population's falling and collapsing, and um, we are going to be in a long-term recession, and therefore there won't be any type of inflation, and precious metals are bad and not good to hold. He thinks for the near term, apparently, maybe in the next 10 years, the best thing to hold is paper dollars uh, because uh, deflation is the most likely scenario. And, I mean, I get where he's coming from on the economics and arguments for how inflation happens and stuff, but uh, I guess my thinking is more in line with what happens when there's a widespread collapse in confidence in the U.S. and they stop buying our debt and, therefore, the dollar becomes worthless and hyperinflation kind of results from that. So I just want to get your thoughts on that. Um, let me know if I'm wrong, if he's wrong, or what your thoughts are, if we're off base, or anyway, just what your your twist is on it. Thanks for your show, Jack. Really appreciate it. Talk to you again soon. Bye. I'll tell you what, I don't really care who the guru is that says precious metals are bad. I have no respect for anybody that says that, uh, at least that particular view. And I'll tell you why. Because it assumes that they know exactly what's going to happen. Now, you'll notice that I have been telling you the exact same ratios of gold and silver for over four years, and even now that I'm selling it, I'm giving you the same numbers. 5 to 10% of your total wealth, 10 to 20% if you want to be more aggressive, and I'm not comfortable at 21% or higher. I have said the same thing over and over and over again because, frankly, we don't know exactly what dynamics are going to play out and exactly how when the market collapses on its ass. We do know that countries that are not economically the U.S.'s best friend like China are pushing and moving toward a metal-backed global currency standard. Whether it's a global currency or not, if you move to several of the largest economies in the world backing their currency with metal, then you move to a place where either you do it or they become the new reserve currency or a basket currency that becomes a new global reserve, which there's a lot of support for in the socialist utopian world that these idiots think that they're going to create. So you don't know. So the why we hold gold and silver, for God's sakes, is to insure our wealth. Now, if you're insuring wealth of a million dollars, you don't buy a million dollars in cost of insurance. You buy a million dollars of coverage for significantly less. I use gold and silver, precious metals, as an insurance policy at a much smaller ratio, 5 to 10% of my total wealth, to insure my total wealth. Get it? It's real simple. Now, let's talk about Mr. Dent. I had never heard of this guy before, but it turns out on 5-17-2011, he did an interview that was posted on Zero Hedge. And let me read um, a little bit about this. Uh, for, uh, gold bugs are about here. Precious metals, SLB, if oil is wearing a toe tag, it will, will gold be far behind? 
Coming deflation will cut the inflationists off at the knees. A strong dollar sends those looking for alternatives to the, into the loony bin. Take these frills away and the barbaric relic becomes just a heavy rock. We'll take it from $1,550 an ounce down to $250 to $400 an ounce. Gold bugs are about to get doused with insecticide. As for silver, how about a move from $50 to $4 to $8? To prove Harry's willing to put his money where his mouth is, he's advising the Dent Tactical ETF Dent, which mirrors and executes his views. Fund is up 20% in the past 12 months. I bet it's not up 20% in the last 12 months or the last 24 months, Mr. Dent, now is it? Um, in fact, I'm going out on a limb saying that. I don't even know if that's true. Oh, look, the genius of demographics, Mr. Dent, that says precious metals are bad. If we look at when he started his, uh, his, this little, this little fund and when this article came out, um, Dent was trading at about 22 bucks a share and it's been on a, a, a straight tangent down. Let me, uh, let me drop the, uh, so I can see where we're at. We're at about 17 bucks. So it's, uh, it's, it's gone down far more than that 20% that it was up. So, um, I'm not going to go about throwing my money in with Mr. Dent or any guru. And I'm not going to even tell you that you should do exactly what Jack Spirico says. Um, what I'm telling you is that precious metals, despite all of the attempts by everybody that thinks they're smart in the financial industry to try to say they're not a good place for your money, have performed just as well as anything else or better than anything else over the last few decades. And there's no reason to believe they won't continue to do that. Now, let's see. We're going to have a demographic collapse. Not in the next 20 years, we're not. The population of the, of, of the country may long-term be in a decline, but you ain't going to see much of it in the next 20 to 30 years. It ain't going to happen, it ain't going to happen, it ain't going to happen. There's plenty of people still squirting out, plenty of new people all over the place. Some of them are doing it in a way that makes us have to pay for them. I just watched a video clip of some lady that was angry that she had 15 kids and no one was paying for them, and someone needed to be paying for them. Apparently she had a fiancé who fathered 10 of them. She didn't want his money. She wanted you and me to pay for it. So there are still plenty of people creating more people, and I do believe the long-term population of the United States is in a moderate decline, but not in any time that's going to come before we totally blow up the economy. If the economy blows up, then silver and gold are going to become extensively valuable as the currency devalues. You don't have to have just specific inflation for silver and gold to play off. You have currency failure, then you have them pay off. Again, they are a wealth insurance program. They have also proven to hold their value over time, period, end of story. And again, if you trust the system... You're a fool, but if we're going to trust the system, let's actually ask the system what the opinion of the system is of the dollar. The opinion of the Federal Reserve, the United States Congress, the President of the United States, the Secretary of the Treasury, and everybody that touches the money and controls the volume in this country, the goal, the opinion, what they're telling you is we will continue to devalue the dollar forever. That is the plan. Look at the value of the dollar from the day they took over in 1913 till today. Ask them why it is that way, and they'll tell you that it's good for you. Look at the way metal has hedged from 1913 till today. You're talking about the preservation of, of, of generational wealth. And I'm telling you, the silver industry in particular... 
People do not understand the dynamics at play. They don't understand how little silver really exists in the world, how much of it's being used by industry and in what's called an inelastic demand. In other words, when you buy an iPad, let's say the economy keeps going good. You buy an iPad, there's a little bit of silver in there. It's not recoverable. Now people say, well, you know, it can't be created or destroyed, only change of form. So it's, yes, it's there, but it's really not recoverable. It's just not. The way that it gets used in such small amounts and how much you have to go through to get it back out, it's non-recoverable. Now, if Apple has to pay twice as much for the silver that goes in an iPad next year, they're not going to buy one speck less of it. It's an inelastic demand. It's the only thing that will do the job. It's a very small amount. It's a very small amount of the total price, and it could quadruple, and they'll still buy it. No matter what they have to pay, they're going to buy it to produce their item. If the economy continues and people want to buy stuff like iPads. If the There's no losing. Short-term, volatility is a risk in the metals market. Long-term, they've proven themselves over and over and over again. And Mr. Dent, Mr. Ramsey, who I respect for his advice on uh, debt, uh, but not on, on investing, or any of these other people can't change it. They continue to crap on it, but it doesn't change reality. And I'd like you to tell me a point in history, other than overnight while people were starving and wanted beans over silver, tell me any actual period, a, a five-year period of history, since gold and silver have become readily exchanged all the way till today when gold and silver were considered worthless. Please show me one. I'm interested. And let's compare that to the totality of time that they've been worth something. And let's see uh, whether it's Mr. Dent or Mr. Anybody uh, out there, uh, them show me anything else that holds up that well. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Rob from Texas. Hey, I heard you mention um, the uh, FEDG um, on your moving episode. Um, what are our options for doing a food hedge? Um, I'm particularly interested in one that um, would have, uh, you know, some privacy to it as well, something that, you know, would grow six, eight feet. Um, but I, I think it would be a really interesting show to uh, to explore our options in 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 some sort of, uh, you know, hedgerow sort of situation. Um, thanks, man. Appreciate you. Bye. Well, Rob, first of all, you left me another long message, and uh, I don't really have time to be tracking people down and calling them right now, but uh, some sort of a concern that I didn't like you or something like that from a comment made from another person I won't name. Um, let me just say, I don't even know who you are. Uh, and you said your site was self-sufficient and sustainable. I've actually never visited that site. I don't know. Maybe you got confused with somebody else, but whatever you're worried about, don't worry about because there's no way I can have a poor opinion of you because I, I, I don't know you. Other than I know you now, and thanks for calling and asking a great question. It's actually a really um, awesome question, and uh, I, I hope you listen to this to get your answer and to know that whatever you think is a problem or animosity for me is not existing because, again, I just... I don't know who you are, and I, I wonder if uh, the person that told you this got you confused with somebody else because there's somebody that runs a site called Solutions from Science that I'm not real fond of, um, and maybe that's it. But anyway, on the question, you know, it's been a long time since I've done something like 15 plants uh, you never heard of for permaculture or something like that, and maybe doing something like 15 plants to make fedges with uh, would be a great show, so, and I think I'm going to do that next week. I'm going to sit down with all of my exotic plant catalogs and things like that, try to come up with plants that will work in the north, plants that will work in the south, uh, that would make interesting fedges or fruit hedges or food hedges. 
But let me give you the short answer today, because it's a great question. The real the reality is there's almost nothing you can't do it with. Um, any plant can pretty much be pruned and trimmed, especially if it's a shrub or a bush, to do this. You can do it with trees. The key is you need tree species that will uh, branch out low or can be trained to branch out low. And most of them can if you'll do the work and basically you don't prune off what you otherwise would have pruned off. The key that you want to do is you want to figure out, well, how high do I want this veg to be? Select varieties of shrubs, hedges, bushes, trees that can be uh, trimmed to that height. And plant them at intervals at about one-third of the planting distance recommended for standard use. So if you have something that recommends a minimum spacing distance of 12 feet, you'd want to plant it at about 4 feet. If you had something that recommended you know, uh, a minimum planting distance of 20 feet, you'd plant them at about 5 And a lot of times when you look at different plants and things like that that are good for, for creating hedgerows, you'll see right on it, you know, recommended planting distance for a shrub or tree, you know, 20 feet, recommended planting distance for a hedge, you know, 4 feet, 5 feet, whatever it is, and follow the indicated uh, amounts. Or use a basic rule of thumb of reduction by about a third to maybe even reduction down to a quarter. So you divide somewhere between by three or by four based on the spread and things like that. And then just plant it up and then prune it and maintain it to form that type of a format. And we can do some interesting things. We can almost make a mini fedge forest. So, so hear me out on that. So what we could actually do then is plant two layers of fedge. And whichever layer is, is, is most exposed to our solar aspect. So if we were in the northern hemisphere, like most of us are facing south, we could plant a tall fedge and in front of it on the, on the, on the, on the sunny side, plant a low fedge. So that we actually start to get some clumpiness and some layers built into there. And I plan to do this particularly the way I want to, I want to step back from the fence enough that this entire fedge structure leaves me plenty of room between my fence and the hedge. So it's two layers of security, but it also, I'll be these little cool holes in it and stuff like that. The dogs will be able to go out there and patrol because if they can see what's going on, they're less likely to cause problems. A lot of people, if you put in privacy wooden fences and you have a dog that just goes ape and runs up and down and up and down and wears the thing uh, like, a, like a trail around and the dog always seems hyper and always is excessive about what's going on outside, you put in what's called a doggy window and he stops doing it. It's, it's pretty cool. You cut a hole in your fence. You frame it out like a picture frame and you put a screen there uh, like chicken wire or maybe more like horse fencing wire, something along those lines that keeps your dog in and safe. And as soon as he can like look out there and see what's going on, all of a sudden he's all cool with everything. So with fedges, I think it's kind of important if you're, you're running animals and you have fencing that maybe you allow this. It also makes it easy to maintain and easy to access from both sides. So not only can the dog get between the fence and the, and, the, and the fedge, I can get in there and I can maintain that area as well. And I plan to drip irrigate the entire thing. And when you start thinking about larger acreages, and I don't mean big acres, I mean two acres, three acres, four acres, uh, even one acre, you're talking about a tremendous amount of food that can be grown in a single fedge line. And if you do maybe two sides and you get wind breaking, you get obstruction of things you like, I got a busy road I don't want to look at. Uh, there's a lot of other things to go with that. So, Rob, again, thank you for this. It's a great question, and it's a show idea that I would have never thought of without you, so I appreciate that. And, again, whatever you heard, and I'm going to talk to this person you heard it from because he's a well, well-known person to me, and, and figure out what the hell is going on because 
I just don't know you other than you've asked a great question. So whatever it is you're worried about, don't worry about it. Uh, let's take another call. Hello, Jack. Jason in South Carolina here. If you could, Jack, please touch on the importance of friends and community with regards to the entire prepper or prepping lifestyle. It's very easy to go to Sam's Club and buy a year's worth of beans and rice. You could do it in one afternoon, but you can't make friends, good friends, in one afternoon. And I think friends and community is one of the most often overlooked components of, of prepping. Um, one possible uh, way to make friends that I would see would be joining a local Kiwanis Club, Rotary Club, Lions Club, whatever. Um, that's a world where you can, can get in, uh, usually with like-minded people. You don't have to talk about prepping, but it's a great way to meet more people and, and make more friends in your community. And uh, I just thought about that this morning. If you could touch on that, you know, I would really appreciate it. Thanks for what you do, Jack, and have a great day. It's a good question, but I'm a little bit surprised by the way that it was asked because it almost seems like you're asking it as though it's not central to what we do here at the Survival Podcast. Maybe you didn't mean it that way. Maybe you're not a maybe you're a new listener and you haven't heard enough of the show yet to know uh, that that's like survival podcast uh, survival theory 101 that the community is as important as the individual when it comes to long-term sustainability um, you have to have that you have to reach out to each other I had you know Selko from shit at the fan school to survive the Balkan Wars and his his exact words I always go back to this because it just breaks the bullshit that the lone wolf survivalist tries to spew if you were alone it didn't matter how much ammo you had it didn't matter how many supplies you had it didn't matter what you had If you were alone and stayed alone, you were dead within two weeks. You either grouped up with somebody or you died. I mean, that, and this is a guy that's been through, the, as bad as it gets with, without rule of law, I mean, probably worse than we'll, we'll see, God willing, ever in the United States, even with a full-on economic collapse. I mean, absolute walk down Main Street, you're a sniper target. You know, a year of a city just being laid siege to, and the people of the city trying to kill each other, deciding which side that they were on. Um, so if that's the case there, well, that's the case with just about anything of a lesser degree, wouldn't you think? So absolutely. Now, as far as forming community, there's a, there's a couple things that you need to do with forming community. The first one is realize that not everybody's going to be a prepper, not everybody's going to be a survivalist, not everybody's going to agree with you politically, and when you walk out your front door and look around and the people that you see living around you, that's where you have to start anyway. And you don't form a preparedness community with them or a survival group with them or whatever, unless they're uh, of a bent that it's going to make sense to do. You form a relationship with them, and you establish relationships and friendships and go out of your way to just about any neighbor that's out there to make sure that they know that if they need anything, even if it's just help me put the new refrigerator and the old refrigerator in the back of the truck so I can haul it away, you're available to do that. And try to do everybody at least a couple favors while, you know, over a year in your neighborhood so that you have that relationship and, and, and the, the being thought of as someone that's assist, you know, will help, that's just, will assist them. Uh, because that goes a long way. If you ever get into a position where you have to kind of rally them as troops, and you might. The prepared will have to be the leaders in a true breakdown, whether it's a week-long breakdown, uh, like so something you know, like a storm, or whether it's it's a year-long breakdown from an economic collapse. We're going to have to be the ones that stand up and hold our communities together. Now, reaching out another layer to people that you actually have relationships with, on you know that are you know of the same mindset, 
the, the, some of the best places to go. You know, you mentioned guns, and guns won't do it all. But yet, the people that fire guns are generally uh, of the mindset of preparedness at least a little bit. So gun ranges are great places to meet people. Setting up and running events. We're going to hear about somebody that did that in a, in a kind of a unique scenario recently uh, from a caller today. Uh, things like that. But running, you know, run permaculture workshops. You, I'm telling you, I have seen some of the most liberal, dreadlock, white kid hippies at, at, at permaculture expos that are like, guns are not cool, man, that are still of the preparedness mindset. As soon as you start going down that path, you start to examine the reason for the need to the path. It starts to lead you there. So even when you don't politically agree with somebody, it doesn't mean they can't be a good ally if there's someone that knows how to grow food, for God's sake. So we're going to have to get along with everybody. And here's the reality. All these people that say, man, you don't need a gun to defend yourself, that if you get into the kind of scenarios that we're worried about, that opinion will change, that problem will correct itself when they start needing somebody to look out after them because they're not able to look out after themselves. So there's a lot of ways you can do this. I did a great podcast with Marjorie Wildcraft. They just ran basically get-togethers, meetups, about farming and sustainability and preserving food. So instead of food storage, they would run a food preservation workshop. You know, have a bountiful harvest this year, not sure to do with all, you know, and they would rent like a rec center or, you know, a place like that and get people together. Don't, don't make it about preparedness. Just let the relationships form. This is what people don't get when they're all trying to put groups together and all. If you can start up a Yahoo group and start having a meetup or you can go on our forum and all and you get people that are already of that mindset get around each other, that's fine and you should do it. But the reality is you always need to be, when it comes to forming community, you need to be leading with the relationship. My willingness to be your friend and be someone that will look out for you in our community and, and have you reciprocate should not be based on the fact that we are in complete agreement about things. It should be based on the fact that we're both decent, moral, upright citizens of the republic that know that our job at times is to take care of other citizens within the republic and that we're decent people being decent to each other. If you're only going to form a group with people that are even 90% in agreement with you, have fun with a group of one, folks, because that's what you're going to have. You're going to have a group of one. I'll bet you there's very few out of you out there that if we really sat down and hashed out every single belief system that you have, as it pertains to politics and preparedness and daily living that are going to be 90% agree with me uh, or me with you. You might think that because you agree with a lot of what I put out on the air, but understand this, whatever I'm putting out, you're twisting it to fit your viewpoint. Sometimes you disagree with me, folks, because you've done that. You're so used to hearing anybody that challenges you is against you. You think I'm against you when I bring something up. You know, uh, or if I use a word the wrong way and the media does that, you think, oh, I'm on, you know, whatever. I have been accused of being both a, a, a neo-Nazi conservative and a flaming liberal after the same episode of this show, which means something just disconnected there. And if that's the case, then even when you think you're in complete agreement, you may not be. It is not important to me that you agree with me. What's important to me is you take my information, you internalize it, you make it your own, you take every other source of information you have, you combine it, and then you form a plan for your own life. That's how relationships and community have to be formed as well. You're not going to agree 100% with the neighbor that shares a fence line with you. That's part of why you have a fence line in the first place. That's okay. Lead with the relationship And don't try going it alone, folks, because it doesn't work. Never has. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. It's Gordon, main man from the forum. 
This question is for you or Paul Wheaton. Just listen to the podcast of uh, chickens. And my question is, I live in Maine. What's the best way to winter them over? Coops. What am I supposed to be feeding them? I got three feet of snow right now. So there's no letting them forward on anything. Uh, I got lots of, I got 70 acres here, all sloped towards the stream that runs through the middle of it. Uh, and I plan on building a couple coops. Uh, I just don't, I'm sitting there right, right now in the winter going, what are they going to be eating? Uh, am I going to have to buy feed for them? Obviously, I think I am, but I'd rather grow some feed with for them uh, in the growing season. Uh, so just any advice for the winter part would be useful. Thanks, Jack. Have a good day. Well, I mean, you're, you're at a point in these northern climates where, look, this whole Wheaton-esque, we're going to move them around and let them live like normal animal thing has to go away. And to me, it's much easier to manage chickens in the depth of winter with a coop or if you have a barn that they're allowed into or something like that that's stationary. So it's, it's easy for you to get to every day because you're going to have to do maintenance for these birds. You're going to have to care for them through the winter. And this is a big case for raising birds and then when it comes time to fall, slaughtering, putting them to meat, and maintaining a flock of the size that will be good enough to reestablish what you want to do next year and run the cycle again. Uh, I can't tell you how many people I've you know heard with you know flocks of ducks or flocks of geese and, and you go, you know, it must be great having them all around. Like, well, they forage for themselves all year, but come fall, some of them got to go because I want to feed them all winter. So, yeah, you're going to have to feed them. You're going to have to house them. I am no expert at poultry in far northern climates like Maine. I'm really not. I can tell you that we kept chickens when I was a kid. Pennsylvania got pretty cold. We had times where it snowed that much. And when it snowed that much, the chickens stayed in their coops. They might have come out a little bit into the run because we would do some things to keep some of the area open. But pretty much they stayed in there. We fed them. And they, you know, as soon as there was enough melt to let them out, even into some selective areas, they'd be right out in the snow finding the bare patches and picking out whatever they could find and things like that again. But we had to feed them a hell of a lot more in the winter. So we didn't winter over that many birds. Um, that was pretty much the way it worked. If you did have a hen that got broody, and we weren't big on raising them for meat, but if you did have a hen that got broody and she had a, a litter and, you know, they were pretty much grown and nice, you know, roasting and broiling size by fall, most of them never saw spring. Most of them never saw winter. So I think there's a balance there to be had with removing excessive members of your flock, and that makes everything easier. Now, how do you deal with the problems that Paul was bringing up? Like, you know, they're, they're in there crapping every day throughout this period. The best way I know to do this is deep litter, which means we go deep with our litter, straw. I actually saw one of Paul's videos I mentioned yesterday where the lady was using, like, basically Christmas tree brows, and that worked great. And I think there's no reason like shredded Christmas trees wouldn't work either. Those were just like they picked up the trees themselves and yanked the branches off and they were pretty large and they kept adding it and adding it and adding it. But a lot of communities and cities and counties and towns now, at the end of Christmas, they have, bring your tree and we'll shred it and we give it away as free mulch. That would work really good and it seemed to keep the smell down a great deal. You do not want to use cedar for this. Birds and reptiles have common ancestry, whether you believe in evolution or not, they do, and both of them are highly irritated by cedar, uh, specifically cedar oil. And as a herpetologist, I can tell you, you don't keep snakes on cedar, and you don't keep birds in cedar either. So, but, but evergreens like spruce and things like that's just fine for litter. You keep adding it, so you don't go out there and clean it out all through the winter. 
when they, it starts to have a little bit more than you want, you add another layer, you add another layer, and you add another layer, and you clean it out a couple times a year. Some people do it once a year. I'm more of the four or five times a year thing. And it keeps the smell. There is no smell with smaller flocks. Now, if you're trying to winter over 50 birds, you've got a different story. But if you're raising some meat birds or taking some broody hens and letting them raise some meat birds for you and taking small flocks, four, a dozen through winter, that's what you're going to do. Now, I'll add to that. Again, I'm not a northern climate poultry expert. I wouldn't even call myself a poultry expert. I'd say I'm a person with poultry experience. Um, in your climate, I would go find other people that are raising chickens that winter them over and say, what do you do? And I would look at what they're doing. And I wouldn't talk to one person and say, well, he does this and that works for him, so this is my best solution. I would go try to find four, five, six people that winter over their birds and say, what do you do? And look at all of them and say, based on my budget, my needs, my wants, how much effort I want to put into it, this is how I'm going to do it. But, yeah, you're going to have to feed them. And you're going to have to feed them pretty much everything they need through the winter. Now, um, you know, I know people that do things like this. They have a pretty big barn. And the chickens have their coop, and the chickens stay in the coop most of the time. But in the harshest parts of the winter, the goats, the sheep, the chickens, the hogs, everybody goes into the barn together. And they live there communally, at least through big storms and things like that. And that seems to work well for them. If you don't have a big barn, I guess you won't be doing that. So, um, And let me say something here that I thought was pretty clear yesterday with as much as I challenged Paul with his paddock shift. I think if you're raising a hundred birds as broilers and your goal is by the end of a season to have all of those birds do a lot of work for you in their land and graduate to being chicken soup and fried chicken and grilled chicken, that Paul's methodology is probably the best one out there if you have a space to do it in. I think his concept of taking a suburban lot and breaking it down into mini paddocks and controlling the movement of household birds through those probably works really well as, as well. And probably is more important on a quarter-acre suburban lot than a three-acre homestead because you can let them overdo it if you're not careful. And the sacrifice, that was great. But his whole contention that if a chicken stays in a tractor for a day, it's a terrible thing, and God, the poor chicken, and it's like it's a freaking Nazi concentration camp for the chicken or something, it's worse than a house of horse. I completely disagree with Paul on that. The whole concept that coop and run is always bad, I think is wrong too. I've seen coop and runs, specifically when they start getting broken up into three or four runs, or what he called a wagon wheel approach. I've seen it work beautifully for people. It's all about the climate, how much grows, do the chickens have all of their needs met, is the place, you know, kept up the way that it needs to be kept up, what grows there natively, and here's the big thing. How many flipping birds are we talking? If you're moving two or three birds around with a sizable tr chicken tractor once a day in a typical suburban grassy lot, they're gonna be fine, Paul. I don't care that you don't agree with me. I don't care that you have your own opinion. I'm not even saying you're wrong. I'm just saying we disagree on that. And I want to say that here because I've gotten a lot of emails about this where people are really concerned they're doing something horrible now. I am not sanctioning a guest, when they come on, is being in 100% agreement with them unless I say, I am in 100% agreement and I think you should do what the guest says. I'm making that recommendation. If you don't hear that, assume I don't fully agree. Because when I fully agree, it's just like I was just talking about not agreeing with everybody you're going to be a friend with, right? When I fully agree, it's so rare that I want to put the endorsement out there. So, 
I think paddock shift of poultry, paddock shift of beef cattle, paddock shift of pork, paddock shift of just about anything that needs to be shifted around is a good idea. We can do it for different reasons. Let me give you another example. Yesterday, I asked Paul about paddock shifting ducks. And Paul, you know, to be fair, admitted he really didn't know a lot about ducks. And that was evident with where he was worried about their pond. Most of all, ducks don't really need a pond. They like a little bit of water. It's a, I want to provide it with tanks so they have it. That'll work. You can pretty much let ducks go anywhere. He, I don't think he got my point. My entire concept of bringing ducks in here, and we're going to do that, I might even do it to the exclusion of chickens to a degree, is that ducks don't scratch. Ducks don't overeat. Ducks do not damage land, and they fertigate with their poop very well. And they're much cleaner animals than chickens, and they have a lot less potential to create odor even in larger flocks. They like to have a house to go to at night, but they pretty much go in there and leave on their own. Um, they, they are an easier, more personable bird to me than a chicken. And I like to eat them better, and I can buy chicken cheap. Even pastured, organic, raised chicken is cheap compared to mass-produced duck. So it's a more valuable meat product for me and harder to find. Easier to raise, less demands. But if I paddock them, it's not so they don't overgraze my land. It's to make sure they go to places and do their pest control thing. But if they go into those, those different tanks and fertigate them, which means poo and pee in them, and I can take that water to a nearby place that needs it and use it for fertigation, that's fertilization for those that aren't familiar with the word, I have liquid fertilizer on demand based on where I kind of push my ducks to that day. Um, and if, for those who want to know, our plan is to raise Indian runners and muscovies. The muscovies are going to be primarily meat birds, but I'm thinking a couple, three hens and one gander, and then my wife can have whatever she wants with the runners and will probably never eat them. I imagine they taste really good, but the meat production seems really low. We may not do any drakes with the runners because we probably don't want too many of them produced unless I can find a market for them. Um, because what I just said, You get a population, especially ducks. Ducks are good at being broody. They're good at being mothers. They're good at raising chicks. You don't have to do a lot to get them to do it. They'll do it all on their own. Muscovies are great. That's why I want them as meat birds. Muscovies, your hen will just disappear. You're like, where the hell is she at? And eventually you'll find her under a bush or something, and she'll have a whole nest of eggs. And you go up, and even a, a muscovy that's not tolerant of people, like in a park or something, that will generally run away if you get near them, you reach in and pet her. She won't leave those eggs. And she'll, she'll raise them up, and if there's not too many turtles in the pond, there'll be more muscovies at the end of the year. So that's what we're going to do with uh, meat there. But I want to be clear uh, that I have different viewpoints than many of my guests. I bring them on so you can hear what they have to say, you can hear what I have to say, you can take your own information, and you can do what's right for you. So don't feel distressed if you disagree with Paul Wheaton. Let me tell you something. If you disagree with Paul Wheaton on a lot of his takes, you're in the majority, not the minority of people, even in the permaculture world, and that's okay. Jack, this is Joe from St. Paul, Minnesota, and I want to share a really cool story with you that I think you will uh, I think you'll find interesting. A couple months ago when you had encouraged your listeners to, to find somebody and maybe share a little bit of information about firearms as a way of spreading liberty and freedom, I really took it to heart. And uh, I'm a pastor of a church in St. Paul, Minnesota, one of the most liberal areas, actually one of the most liberal neighborhoods in that city. We're about a block away from the governor's mansion and surrounded by six 
very, very liberal schools. And so I, I thought I would do something as a small group idea at the church to just offer an opportunity to, for those who have never fired a, a gun and never had any experience with that, um, a chance to go as a group and um, qualify to get the permits to carry. And I, I spent 10 years in the Air Force as a cop, and so I'm very familiar with, with firearms. And a lot of people in the church have never been exposed to that. And I was a little hesitant to make it too public because I didn't want to be viewed as some kind of a gun-thumping warmonger pastor. But I was blown away because when I had opened the, the small group up, I thought maybe I'd get about five, five to ten people who would sign up. But instead, on the first day, had over 45 people from the congregation sign up. And when we went to the class, uh, it was amazing. It was awesome. They, almost everyone there had never even touched a gun before in their life. And half the class, half the people who signed up were women, And which brought up something that I think maybe your listeners would, would appreciate, is that a lot of times um, the, the women in the group, they said that they never would have done it alone or even with their husband, but because... There were familiar people there that they trusted, and some of their friends, they decided to go, and they did awesome. I mean, it was so cool to see someone who had previously looked at a gun as a sinister, evil device, and then were able to be taught how to handle it safely and effectively, and walk away just having an incredible experience. Everyone there qualified. I think everyone there is applying for their permit to carry. In fact, it was so successful that word got out throughout the church, and we're going to have to have another class because so many people are interested. So it's, it's amazing what can happen when you just present something to, to people in a, in a way that is comfortable and non-threatening, how it can, it can change their mindset. So I wanted to let you know, Jack, and thank you for all that you do, and that... Um, it just takes a little step to help spread liberty and freedom. All right, you have a great day. What what can I add to that other than, well, more of you please do that, uh, whether it's pastors, whether it's leaders of different groups, or whether it's individuals. Uh, you know, I said earlier a little bit facetiously that D Dianne Feinstein has done more to solidify the Second Amendment uh, with her proposed nonsensical legislation than I ever could have. But I'll tell you what, this this type of thing magnified by thousands, maybe, dare I say, millions of Americans, uh, will do even more than that. It's it's amazing. It really is. And it's great to hear somebody, you know, again, verify. You, you tell somebody something, they go do it, and they come back and they go, you know what? Not only does it work, it's amazing. It works great. And then once we did it, now we got to do it again because people are demanding it. And I'll tell you this, those of you that are out there going, man, I, I can't get my buddy to go do this. He won't do it. He's anti-gun. And he'll, if a pastor of a church in a liberal area can stand up and do this, you can do it too. And I have an idea. I have an idea. Um, somebody should, should create a template and maybe even this gentleman here for pastors to do this with their church groups. Uh, I, you know, pistol packing pastors sounds cool, but it's not the way to go because it, uh, it, it's too gunny sounding, if you get what I mean. It might be just simply like, I don't know what to call it, 
But I'd love to see this formalized in some way where a pastor of a church goes, I'd like to do this. Here's exactly how you do it. Here's how you talk about it. Here's how you don't overdo it. Here's how you can maybe undersell it or whatever. Here's how you tie it into the concept of being a Christian. Okay, I'm not a Christian. I'm not, guys. We're going to get to that in a second with a question I have to answer because it's been asked enough times. Uh, I would not characterize myself that way. I would characterize myself as a deist. I'll leave my comments on that until until I get to that question. But it doesn't mean I don't have complete and total respect for people that do. And if you're going to do something, I think I have enough knowledge of the Christian faith growing up in Catholic school as a Catholic to tell you there's plenty of of ammunition, so to speak, for the concept of self-preservation, self-defense, and defensive community within biblical teachings. And not with it being, you know, some kind of hysterical ranting stuff, but with it being sensible concepts that I am my brother's keeper. Therefore, I'm also my brother's defender. Every citizen, and every citizen a sentinel. What have you. Or maybe it's, maybe you don't make it pastors. Maybe we do something with every citizen a sentinel and we talk about the role firearms play in that and we make it simple for anybody in any group, uh, to, to organize and do. But I don't know that it's necessary. Other than maybe if that gives it momentum, it's worth it. I'm not doing it. I've got enough on my plate. It's an idea that anybody's free to do whatever they want to with. But the reality is it's simple. You find a good training facility with good instructors that you can trust. You tell people about it and you take them. Uh, I think it's a great thing. Thank you for sharing it, sir. And uh, let's go on to another question. Living in Hawaii. Aloha, Jack. Uh, cheese here, Brian. Uh, just had a quick question about uh, living in the most remote area in the world and what I can do to prepare in case there's civil unrest or anything else you know, where we can't get supplies out here. I am doing aquaponics and hydroponics, and we have a three-and-a-half-acre coffee farm, mac nut farm, and lots of um, different fruit trees. So... Just your thoughts and comments on living in a remote area like this. And uh, it's a very liberal area. Talk to you soon. Mahalo. There's a little bit of humor here. Not like ha-ha-ha humor, but just ironic humor. That everybody that lives in a place that's densely populated and has lots of people around, even in the outrings of the suburbs, wants to get remote. And as soon as somebody's remote, they're afraid that they're too remote. It's like we can't be happy no matter where we're at. The reality is I think you're probably in a pretty good place to ride out an apocalypse. The good news is you're in a climate where you can grow things like crazy all year round, and there's plenty of rain to do it with. So what that means is that if you're forced into self-sufficiency, that the, the where you're living, it can happen. The problem is you have a very large, unsustainable urban population in your non-remote areas that may immediately decide that, hey, all those uh, people that don't live on the beach that aren't rich, now they're the ones with the wealth. Maybe we need to go there and get some of their stuff. So I would say basic protections, basic community development, and continue to expand on your self-sufficiency. It's great that you have a three-acre macadamia nut and uh, coffee plantation, but you can only, well, let me rephrase that. Uh, uh, macadamia nuts are a pretty dadgone good survival tool, and coffee is a great barter tool. Um, now you're in a place where coffee's prevalent, so it may not be the barter tool that it would be in Pennsylvania, uh, but it would be quite useful in, in, a, in a breakdown. I think you're in a good position. I would expand your food production 
uh, taking even a, a tenth of an acre into food forestry or twentieth, you know, uh, two tenths of an acre into food forestry could produce an abundance of food year round, expanding your aquaponics. I wouldn't sweat it. I would be pretty content if I were you. Um, now you have to do your own evaluation of your security risks and you need to make sure that you have enough food stored for the things you can't produce to extend your ability and have at least a good one year sustainability. Um, but there are so many resources available uh, to the Hawaiian Islands from a standpoint of if the U.S. falls on its butt, Hawaii's kind of hanging out there and can pretty much say, you know what, we're not part of America anymore, we're Hawaii. Uh, I think it would be the easiest state to succeed on planet Earth, and they would dissolve most of their debt to the Fed when they did it, and they would have commerce with anybody with a boat in the Pacific Ocean. Um, I'm not saying that's what's going to happen. I'm just saying if all bets are off, it's easier for that to happen than a lot of other things. Again, the problem you have is the huge population, coastal Hawaii, uh, in the tourist-centric areas. But you would also probably see, well, if you know, you're in that kind of a breakdown, tourism's going to be taking a hit. So there's a, probably a pretty substantial population at any one given time in those areas of people that don't actually live there and wouldn't be there during a breakdown. They would, uh, they would stop coming because tourism would take a hit if the entire economy went into a, a pol- apocalyptic implosion. So I wouldn't sweat this. Um, no, see, and here's the thing. You have to understand no matter where you live, it's always a compromise. If you live in the middle of nowhere in Idaho, um, you have a compromise that You know, there's a good survival community there, but there's also a significant portion of them that believe in predatory survivalism. And that's just, and I'm sure that's anywhere, but, you know, I've heard people talk it a little bit more from those areas. On the other hand, uh, you got a lot of resources that can be utilized with people that know how to take care of themselves and look after each other, and you got a good community uh, working for you. If you, if you live in the, you know, the, like the Flagstaff, Arizona area, you don't have the deserts you have to deal with around Phoenix. You have a lot of resources, but you're still somewhat remote and there's a lack, lack of water and things like that, but you're less likely to be harassed than if you live in the middle of Philadelphia. But if you live in the middle of Philadelphia and, and all but a complete and total collapse, there's some resources available and, you know, there's, there's a way to get by and there's a more likelihood to be commerce even in pretty bad scenarios. And, but then you have have a higher crime rate and you have a potential for uh, a cancer cell like Camden, New Jersey to begin exporting its cancer cells and making a, a bad area of Philadelphia even worse. I mean, it doesn't matter. See, it doesn't matter. There, the belief that there's any place that you can go that will solve all the problems for you is nonsensical. If it didn't work for Bo Greitz with Almost Heaven, it's not going to work for anybody. It just isn't. So we have to do the best w- w- we can with what we have, where we're at, and we should live where we most want to be. If you want to live in a remote part of a beautiful place like Hawaii and practice aquaponics and homesteading there and grow your food 24-7, 365, great. Keep doing it. Rock on. Just don't let the beauty go to your head and realize that you may have to defend yourself and others at some point. Be prepared to do that. And the reason we defend ourselves and others is not so we can be an island alone. I mean it figuratively, not actually here with the Hawaii coming in. But so that we can be stable enough to put things back together after a catastrophe. The whole point is a rebuilding. Anyway, great call. Enjoy the beautiful place that you live and make it your own. That's what my advice is. Uh, let's take another call. 
Hey, Jack. This is Randy in Houston, uh, GG61501 on the forums. And I was listening to uh, you answer a question from a gentleman in New York about taxes. And uh, I live here in Texas and agree 100% with everything you say there. My question is, when you got to talking about silver, and it just brought something up in my mind I've not really thought much about, is there any concern that we should have, uh, or is there uh, concern out there already or whatever, about those of us who do have silver um, being concerned about, you know, if we buy silver online or substantial amounts of silver online, any concerns that we need to have about the government finding out about that, uh, or, you know, not that they can't. But, uh, you know, being taxed on uh, the value of our metal holdings going up or, or anything like that. I hope you. Uh, another thing I heard on the show, the same episode, uh, you were answering a question about uh, chickens and uh, the smell of coops. And I just wanted to let the caller know that you were answering the question, too, that uh, I've, I've got a flock of sometimes as many tw- as 12 chickens in my backyard, and there is no stink whatsoever. They're in a 4 by 8 little shed that I built. They've got an 8-foot by 12-foot run that they spend most of their time in during the day, except when I let them out to, to range around our property. But it's 4 by 8. It's uh, inside the shed. It's well-ventilated with just some discarded windows, and there is no stink. Um I use uh, pine, pine shavings from Tractor Supply, dump a bag of those in about once a month, make sure they're stirred around. Every couple of months, I completely empty out the coop and refresh with, uh, with new stuff. There is no stink. Even in the, the middle of August in the Texas heat, not a problem with stink at all. All right. See, this is this is the issue. And and Chris Dwayne talked about this when we launched TSP Mint uh, with silver. He said the very fact that you're concerned about the fact that they might know that you bought silver is an incredibly good reason to to not be holding cash in a bank and holding silver physically because I spent it, I lost it, it was stolen, I gave it away, I had debts, I had a gambling. I mean, there's a million answers to that. But but here's the reality. Let's assume that um, the government decides it's going to go out and start taxing property, okay, uh, beyond real property at the local level. So the federal government is in deep shit, and they want to start harvesting the American people even more than they already do. Uh, they want to put the, 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 the IV deeper and suck more blood out of you like the vampires that they are. And they say, well, we're going to – why do you think that they would, they would uniquely go out and say, well, this guy bought silver. We're going to tax the silver. All right. If you're worried about the government, worrying about the fact that you have a couple hundred ounces of silver in a safe, God help you if you have a car or a house or a bank account or a retirement account. It's it's almost ridiculous to the point of some people sit around and they worry about you know they have their guns. Right, and they have their NRA sticker that says "From my cold dead hands on the back of their pickup truck," and then they're afraid that the government's going to come take their silver away. What about your food? What about whatever you possess? Are you going to not possess something because somebody might try to take it away from you someday? Now, are there ways to maybe minimize visibility? Sure, but the reality is, silver is taxed when sold. When sold, when the gain is realized, you, you, you don't get taxed on something sitting there 
Uh, that's, especially that's a monetary instrument. You get taxed on a gain with it. Now, could they pull something? Yeah, but your aunt could have balls and then she'd be your uncle. Right? I mean, well, what if, what if, what if? And, uh, you know, I, I just think that we worry too much about these what ifs that are, you know, not really ridiculous, but in the realm of highly improbable, all while the government is doing everything right out in the open in front of us to infringe on liberty and cost us more money and take our wealth away. They don't need to seize your silver. All they need to do is devalue your money and suck value out of it. Uh, there's, it's just an irrational fear. It's the same as people like, I'm afraid to buy ammo online. Because if you buy ammo from cheaper than dirt by walking in the front door with a credit card, and they want to really find out if you bought something or not, they can trace it. Anything other than a cash transaction for physical cash up front. And, and, I mean, trust me, they're working to get rid of that. They can figure out if you bought bubble gum with a Visa card. So I'm, I, I have so many legitimate concerns to worry about. Whether or not the government's going to send a SWAT team to seize my silver 20 years from now, I don't have time to worry about that. And Chris Dwayne did a great, um, piece, a great YouTube video that I'm going to put in today's show notes, specifically about people afraid of like silver confiscation or something like that, as it relates to what was called gold confiscation in the 1930s. I'm not going to say another word about it. I'm going to say if you have this concern, go to the show notes today at the survivalpodcast.com, look where it says resources for this show, look for the Chris Dwayne video and watch that. I'm going to let him do the talking for me on it. I'm not going to worry about it. The chicken thing, great to hear. Just buying pine shavings from Tractor Supply. Well, that's pretty easy and pretty inexpensive. So there's another suggestion for you on keeping the odor and coops down. And you hear, hear pretty much he's doing exactly what I said. You, you just keep adding litter, deep litter, deep litter, deep litter, clean it out a few times a year. And let me tell you, folks, if you've never experienced a Texas summer, if a coop that size with a dozen birds can go through a Texas summer without stinking, you can do it anywhere. Because if there's any place it's going to stink, It's going to be in the heat, and trust me, man, we know how to do heat in Texas, especially from what this guy said. He's in South Texas, pretty far south of me, and they really know how to do it there. Uh, let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is John in Virginia. Uh, big fan of your show. Been listening for about uh, two years now. Um, got a question for you about uh, survival. Um, it's a lot of times you deal with mostly. Uh, Physical survival, you know, growing food, uh, weapons, uh, things like that. I have a question about social survival. I uh, <clears throat> encountered a, uh, a article on uh, James Wesley Rawls' website, and the, uh, the writer was talking about how that uh, if he was in a survival situation with someone who wasn't a Christian, how he couldn't trust that person, and they'd be likely to uh, not include them in the group and to exclude them from things. Uh, I know that you don't like to talk about religion a lot on, on your podcast, but uh, you have hinted at the fact that, that you're not really big on religion. Um, I'm an atheist, and I'm also a survivalist, or, or at least a prepper, and I've, I've often wondered what would happen in a survival situation um, if I would have to uh, fake belief um, to survive, and I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. What, uh, what about beliefs, uh, morals, and things like that if, if someone... If groups doesn't, don't want to uh, participate you or have you as part of their group in a survival situation, how would you adapt? 
Uh, it'd be great to hear your uh, answer on that. And uh, keep up what you do. Thanks. Bye. I have a feeling I'm really going to upset some people here. And if I do, I'm going to tell you that while a lot of times I'm willing to admit that I could be wrong, I think your problem is your problem, not mine. Okay, I, I have to say that. I'm going to clear something up. I think I've said it a few times here and there, but I get a lot of questions about religion and why well, I don't talk more about it, and it's because I don't think your religion is my business, and frankly, I don't think my religion is, should be used to tell you what you should do in your life. That's not me. I understand some people take that approach. They base their whole life on a faith, uh, and they evangelize it everywhere and everywhere they can, and that's part of the freedom that's in America. I think that's wonderful. I don't think that's a change. I just choose not to participate in it. My faith is best described as deism. In other words, I'm a deist, like many of our most prominent founders, uh, such as Thomas Paine and, and Thomas Jefferson, are uh, both known as deists. And even though you can find Jefferson using the pulpit from time to time, this is a politician, and if you read his writings, he's pretty much a, a deist, as was Benjamin Franklin. Um, at least espoused many deist beliefs, even if he was an Anglican uh, by registration, I guess you would say. Uh, so that's me. And I, th I don't think that you should do that because I do that. And, and frankly, to the caller, you're an atheist, and I don't get atheism because atheism, to me, is very different from agnosticism. Agnosticism is, I don't think there's a God, but there could be. And that I'm very much, I can understand why you'd feel that way. Atheism says, I know there's no God, and that seems very short-sighted in a world where there's so many things that we don't know. I won't give you my reasons for choosing to not be part of an organized or recognized faith. Again, I feel that's not really anybody's business but my own. And uh, I don't have any desire to convince anybody anywhere that they need to do what I do or leave their faith for mine or anything like that. I'm at peace with whatever you want to believe. That's the first thing that I have to say. But since I get the question often about spirituality and religion, there you go. That's who Jack Spirico is. And hopefully you still trust me. Right, Because there are plenty of people who have claimed to be Christians or Muslims or Hindus or Buddhists or Jewish or anything who, who then were untrustworthy. And there's many people that said, oh, I have sinned, please forgive me, and were serious and that were full of crap and used it as a get-out-of-freaking-jail-free card. So, what is my assessment of a group that would say, well, if you're not a Christian, we don't trust you and we're not letting you in. I don't want to be part of your group if you feel that way. I don't want to not be part of your group because you're Christian, but if I, if it's a Christians only club, I don't want in because I'll give you the single word for what that is. And this is where I'm going to upset some people. Bigotry. Bigotry. It's absolute ignorant bigotry, and I do not want to be part of a group like that. I certainly wouldn't lie or compromise my principles to get into it, and frankly, that's why you should trust me. And and this is the way that I feel. If you tell somebody, if you don't think the way that I think, then I don't trust you, you are as wrong if you're saying it because of their faith, if you're saying it because of their orientation sexually, if you're saying it because of their skin color, if you're saying it because of their race or natural origin, I wouldn't tolerate it. Somebody telling me, well, you're white, so I don't trust you. I only trust people that are Hispanic, or I only trust people that are, are black, or I only trust people that are Asian, or, or I only trust people that are Aramaic, or whatever. 
Okay? Or I only trust people who are Native American. And I wouldn't go get a, a really dark suntan and dye my hair to try to change what I looked like so that you would take me in. If you felt that way, I would tell you, well, go on with your bad self and stay away from me. Okay? And if it happens to be over faith, I don't care if it's Christian faith, Hindu faith, Buddhist faith, Muslim faith. I don't care. Because anybody can say they're anything when it comes to a faith. Anybody can claim it. It doesn't make it so. I will trust a person based on the inherent validity that they've earned my trust and they've shown themselves to be trustworthy and I don't care what your religion is and I don't care what your politics are. I might know that you're going to make certain decisions certain ways because you're devout this or a non-devout that or whatever and I might take that into consideration in some way, shape or form with how I think you'll respond to something and I might have a, a, a certain amount of respect for your belief and not say certain things to you in a certain way because I don't want to offend you if it's at all possible and if it's at all reasonable. You know, in other words, if you're offended by the fact that I don't agree with you, that's tough crap, buddy. I don't care. But I'm not going to go out and say I think you're foolish because you tie the 10% of your income if that's part of your faith. If that's part of your faith, that's part of your walk in life, that's part of your spiritualism, you are every bit as respected for that as I want you to respect me for mine. And when you deal with people that say crap like, well, if you're not like me, I don't trust you. Well, guess what, buddy? It's a two-way street. I don't trust you either. And I don't care what the difference is. It doesn't matter. Unless the difference is, well, you should like, you should like shooting people in the face with a bazooka. Okay, now we've gone over to the world of criminal activity and infringing on the inherent rights to liberty and life of another. If your belief system is, I think it's okay to go in and rob people's houses, you're depriving people of their creation-granted right to property. And I am not about that. But if you and I differ over something or if we have a different skin color or we're different ages or we have different historical viewpoints or we're different politically, I'm not going to take that into whether I trust you or not. Now, I might take it in if I'm voting for you in an election. If you're a self-proclaimed socialist, I absolutely trust you to be a socialist. And I don't want you in control of my country. But it doesn't mean I wouldn't trust you even with a loan. Of my money. I might not choose to invest in you if it's advancing your socialist activities, but in a breakdown, guess what? We'll all become Americans and fellow citizens of a fallen republic really damn quick when we have no choice. And elitism by any group is just a way of softening the term bigotry. And you can be a Christian bigot, you can be a white bigot, you can be a black bigot, you can be a Republican bigot, you can be a libertarian bigot, you can be a socialist bigot, you can be a brown bigot, you can be a red bigot. If they ever come up with human beings through genetic modification that are green, then you can be a green bigot. And there is no place in my life and no tolerance whatsoever for bigotry from any human being over another. And if that's you, I don't want to be part of what you're doing anyway. 
Because you're basing your assumptions on a really bad idea. Because if you say, well, we'll take Christians but nobody else, well, all I got to do is walk up there, and since I'm not a Christian and there's nothing that's going to hurt me by saying I am, I'll just lie to you because I'm not bound by your code if I wanted to be part of you. That means you actually would attract people with lower integrity that don't mind compromising their integrity and lying to you about the very thing that you're trying to verify. See? It backfires. It doesn't work. I have no place in my life for bigotry. I hope you don't either. I accept all people. Many people participate in things that I don't think are normal and I don't want to be part of and I don't want to sanction, but I also have no desire to interfere with. And it doesn't mean I wouldn't accept you as my friend. Again, as long as you're not shooting people or hurting people or violating people's rights, I don't care what you do as long as you don't ask me to pay for it. It's called being a libertarian. And I am absolutely 100% in that vein with all the things in my life. It is my guiding philosophy more than my faith as a deist that there's a creator behind the universe. I believe there's an intelligence and architecture and that there's a purpose to the, the entire universe to life. I consider myself spiritual but not religious. But my, my guiding force in how I interact with other people is far more libertarianism than deism. Okay, it's that simple. If you want your guiding force to be Christianity, then I would say study your own faith when you say, I wouldn't take somebody in because they're not Christian. Because frankly, that's not a very Christian behavior. And that gentleman, I'm not speaking to anybody in this audience right now, except that gentleman that wrote that article, read your own damn book, buddy. Read your own damn book. And I know that most of you out there that are Uh, the Christian faith, whether it's Protestant or Catholic or any other form, you probably, though you don't agree with my choice for my life, pretty much feel the same way. And that's why I don't care what faith you are. If we're in it together and we need to depend on each other, I would give my all to defend your life. And if that's not a good enough reason for you to trust me, then I don't need to be part of whatever you're doing anyway. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Robert in Arkansas. My question is, uh, what would you recommend for self-defense in and out of the home as an alternative to a gun? Um, I am unable to own a gun due to some bad decisions in my past, but would still like to be able to defend myself. I've asked about owning a black powder pistol, but was told that that was not allowed either. I own a bow that I use for hunting, and I guess if I had to... Um, and had enough time, I could use that in the house, but it's not very practical. I definitely can't carry it around with me. Uh, hopefully you can give me some suggestions or advice. Uh, thanks for all you do. Have a great day. Well, I went pretty in-depth about home security recently with keeping doors locked, alarm systems, uh, security films on your windows, uh, good locks for your doors using products like the Door Sentinel uh, to keep your door from being kicked in, fake TV to keep people out of your house when you're away. So I've summarized that. I'm not going to go through that all again, but those are all things. One of the things I said in that show, though, that, that we do is we have lots of Cold Steel Inferno pepper spray, lots of cans of it, Velcroed to certain places throughout our home, like behind curtains and under tables. And I would tell you it's one of the most effective, non-lethal forms of defense that's out there. And I would imagine that there's nothing that prevents you from having that, especially if not on your person in your own home. Uh, and that would be something that would work really, really well. 
When it comes to defense of home without a firearm, the reality is we have to accept something. In spite of what they tell us, there's a reason for the Second Amendment, and it would be best. So anything that we do is not going to be as good. That's kind of the point. okay? But there are some things we can do. Um, there's nothing wrong with a good old-fashioned baseball bat. And as long as the perpetrator isn't armed with a gun themselves, it's pretty dadgone effective. And you have to understand with a home defense scenario, you got a person trying to breach entry. That funnels them into a position where they're limited in their mobility, and you got all kinds of room to move around. It works. And the most sought-after item on Amazon for folks in the U.K. during the U.K. riots, where nobody can get a gun, apparently, uh, was just, was baseball bats. I mean, they were sold out on Amazon, uh, Amazon U.K. anyway. So that's uh, something that can be used. Um, really bright lights have a tendency to disable an attacker at least long enough for you to assess the situation and begin a counterattack. So really bright, heavy-duty tactical lights, and there's nothing wrong with a good old-fashioned 4D cell uh, flashlight, and you can smack the hell out of somebody like that as well. Inside 21 feet, in a confrontation, many times the knife is more dangerous than a gun, and the guy with the knife wins the fight. So you may not be able, under your circumstances, because what I'm here is probation or parole here. It might play a, 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 a thing in here. Uh, or maybe you are done with that, um, and maybe you can carry a knife. But I would say a knife is your next best defense other than a gun. And even if you can't carry one, I don't think there's anything that prevents anybody from having something like a great big giant... Cutco chef's knife in your house, and that's a pretty formidable weapon. Uh, so that would be, you, you've really got three choices in, you've got incapacitation type implements. These would be stun guns, tasers, uh, pepper spray, things like that. Uh, actually, you got four. Disorientation would be things like bright lights. You've got blunt object, okay, so that's your baseball bat, your, 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 your mag light is a combination of the two, and you've got a stabbing, slashing, or cutting implement like a knife. Or, I'll tell you what, if you wanted a really lethal home defense weapon, um, you, you'd look at uh, a short sword, like a katana, like the short, I don't remember what you call it, but the katana is your long samurai sword. The second one down, a little bit shorter, a little bit better for uh, confined situations. Uh, a good one of those is a pretty uh, defensive weapon. We did an experiment one time where we gave people basically a, a rubber sword that you could hit somebody with and it wouldn't really hurt them. And we chalked it up. So it was we, we put chalk on it. And we had people go into, so we gave the person with the sword and we put them in a building. This was done with, with the, the Russian guys. And we put them in the building and we said, we want you to learn the outlay of the building. And we did it in dim light so it would be similar to an evening invasion. And we, want, we said, okay, we want you to know the area. You hear somebody trying to get in, pick your place. And we gave the guy that came into the house an airsoft gun and said, you, if you see the homeowner, don't hold him up, don't tell him to get on the ground, just shoot his ass. Right, so we have the most, you know, most willing to kill intruder and a guy trying to defend himself with a samurai sword. The guy with the sword laid a stripe on the black dressed intruder with a gun about eight out of ten times before that gun ever even got fired, let alone a hit that would be sufficiently lethal. Um, it's hard to believe 
But when you think about it, one of the biggest advantages you have in a home defensive situation, you generally know your, your house better. Now, somebody emailed me when I made that statement before and said, well, Jack, there's people that basically they're, they're coming in and robbing houses because they've been casing them as contractors or looked them up on real estate sites and things like that. And they know the, they still don't know the layout. No one knows your house's layout as well as you were somebody that's lived there before, at least. And we even tend to forget that. There's a lot of nooks and crannies and cover and advantageous positions that can be taken up. You mentioned a bow. I think a bow is a terrible home defense weapon. It takes too damn long to draw. It's too cumbersome. Yeah, if you have 15 guys with bows set up in uh, watching positions and you have people trying to invade a force-on-force -force type of thing and they're not armed with suppressive firepower uh, or they're not utilizing it because they don't think they need it, though that can work. But somebody's kicking your door and you're trying to draw a comp, forget it. Forget it. Um There was, uh, Mythbusters did a thing where they took, um, a guy with a bow shooting at a dude with a samurai sword. They took a trained guy with a sword and, uh, the guy that was shooting was, uh, the, the skinny guy, Adam. And the guy with the sword got to him like every time. They put a tennis ball over the arrow so the guy wouldn't get shot. And basically the guy would stand there and knock the arrow out of the way. And by the time he tried to knock another arrow, he'd gotten to him with the sword. And uh, so there's, there's, there's only so much we can do. If you were going to use something like a bow, I would recommend a small crossbow, uh, even a pistol-style crossbow, because at least that can function like uh, a firearm to agree. I don't know if that would violate your parole, probation, or just, you know, if that's done, if it's a felony thing, but it's wrapped up. I don't really know, you know, since I've never been convicted of a felony, I don't really know exactly how all of that works. I'll use this as another one of my soapbox moments that will make people upset. I personally feel that even a person with a felony conviction, once they've done their time, their parole, everything, it's done. They've stayed clean and they've shown themselves to be rehabilitated, should have full restoration of all their rights, including the right to vote. As far as I know, a felony conviction takes away your right to vote. Um, and if I'm wrong about that or if it is restored, let me know. Uh, my understanding is it's over. You don't get to vote anymore. Um, and there's certain other rights besides keeping and bearing arms that are taken away. I don't have a problem with, okay, you've committed a felony, <laughs> even a, a low-end felony. While you're in prison, you don't get a gun. Fine. While you're on parole, you don't get a probation, whatever, you don't get a gun. But I think once it's been done, especially nonviolent felonies, You know, you get people either drug charges or whatever, no possession of a weapon or anything involved with it. Nobody hurt anybody. Nobody attacked anybody. And it just qualifies as a felony under code. Uh, man, once that's repaid, I think rights are to be restored. Uh, I don't have a problem with them being taken as part of the sentence. That's, uh, you know, a consequence. And whatever you did, you know, if you've, if you've made amends for it, recognize I accept you back as a citizen of the Republic. And don't do it again. And do what you can with what you have. Uh, I get emails all the time with people asking me about self-defense in other countries that have the same problem that you do. Hopefully they're listening to this because this is the same advice. Figure out what you have and how to make your position as defendable as possible. Be smart. Don't just look at it as straight up how do I, how do I combat an invader? How do I prevent them in the first place? Um, planting thorny shrubs and stuff around your windows and things like that is just simple, low-tech methodologies. A little yappy dog, at least it alerts you unless you know something's going on. Things like that go a long way. Let's take, I think we have one more call and we're done for the day. Would you explain 
heating greenhouse with manure. I have a greenhouse that's approximately 9 foot by 10 foot. It's about 7 foot tall. I want to heat it with horse manure. Can you explain to me how to do that? I just want to do it in the... Uh, I want to plant stuff early in the spring, so I just want to get a good start on planting stuff. Thank you. Bye. Yeah, it's pretty easy, and I'll be brief because we went really long today. And I am going along with the call-in shows, guys. It takes me a long time to do them. I might as well make the most out of them and get as many calls on the air as I can. So I've upped them to about 14, and this is our 14th call of the day. Um, to the caller, it's not really about manure. It's about composting. The composting process, when done properly, and it, you really want to do it properly, you're looking at about a, a, a cubic meter of compost. So it's a, a large pile. You're looking at something that would be waist high and as big or bigger around at the bottom. You want a good mix of your greens and browns. I have a question on composting for Monday's show, so tune in to learn more about composting in general. But you're mixing nitrogens and carbons together. So your manure is primarily a nitrogen source. We're going to call it a green, even though manure is only green when something's really wrong with it, right? Okay, but we need to put a mix in there. Let's say manure, straw, wood chips, maybe some green matter. And if we put that all together in a great big pile in the center of your greenhouse... Um, with about three to four days into it, as the composting process begins and bacteria begin to, to bloom and die, bloom and die, bloom and die, the center of that, that bed is going to get up to about 160 degrees. The radiant heat off of that pile will generally keep most greenhouses and all but the most extreme environments at least above freezing or close to, so you'll be able to pl get plants that are tender enough that even in a greenhouse they wouldn't make it through the evenings through the evenings. We can accentuate that. One way we can do that, we get a whole bunch of tubing, and we put it in our compost center of our pile. We put a certain amount of water in it. It's like a passive. We don't want to fill it. We want to fill it maybe halfway, and it'll, the heat will push water around the tubing and back down the other side, like a radiant heater. We could run that around the perimeter of our greenhouse. Um, we could run that right through the rows of our plants to also help with supplemental heat. But again, you're looking at 140 to 160 degrees internal temperature, and that's usually enough of a rise in a greenhouse your size with one pile to do it. The problem is that, okay, after about three or four or five days, you have to go in there and turn it, and then it's going to start again, and then you have to turn it. And about 21, 28 days into it, that pile's finished. So as we get a pile into maybe its, its second turn, if we want to make it through a winter, we need to be bringing in another pile and another pile. So you need enough manure and other materials to get that done. There's a lot of ways that this can be done. Um, I've seen it done on an industrial scale. There's a place up in Minnesota or Michigan, one or the other, huge aquaponics greenhouse system, and they make tons of compost in the winter. Um, inside their greenhouses, and it's enough to keep the fish warm, it's enough to keep the plants warm right in the middle of, again, it was Michigan, I think, or Minnesota. Either way, you're talking pretty cold northern climates. So that's what you do. It's not really heating with manure. It's heating with composting, if you're asking it that way. Another way you could do it with manure would be to anaerobically compost the manure, put it in some kind of a container, it's going to release methane, off-gas the methane, and run a heater powered by methane from the methane from the manure. That's another way you could do it, but I didn't get the feeling that's the way that you would ask the question. So composting, we're going to go into more deeply on Monday's show. Tune in for that. But heating a greenhouse with manure, really you're talking about heating a greenhouse with composting. And it's just a matter of doing composting in a large enough volume that the heat creates supplemental heat for the greenhouse. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. 
there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Revolution is you.